0: 21 Colorado Teacher of the Year, Gerardo Munoz. And I'm out here having survived week two. It was real. Week two was real. Not quite as real as week one. I feel like you teach a thousand careers um, in five days when you teach in week one. And in my building, we try to do a little something revolutionary, which was to upstage content in the in, in favor of community building, uh, which I think was a really, really good thing. And just like any good new groundbreaking things, there are some things to clear up and to strengthen going forward, but it doesn't change the fact that I really do think it was a great idea. Shout out to my school leadership for making that happen. Just really was a positive experience. and um, And now we have an opportunity to learn from said positive experience. So I got through week two, things are starting to move just a little bit. Um, I, I guess I have one week left until the calm before the storm, the storm being my PhD program, which starts sooner than I would like to admit. I've got friends in the uh, State Teachers of the Year program who have already started doctoral programs through um, through Alden and other programs. And you know they're already neck deep in the work and I've got a little bit of work, but um, just about to get started with that. So um, thoughts and prayers? Is that a thing that I'm going to need here? So um, it's been an interesting few days. I I had a chance to see a friend of mine on Friday um, who's an artist and uh, got a chance to really clarify things with him. So just want to You know, the details will be coming in the future. um, But I just want to add that, you know, for a really long time, I was a a teacher who writes. And uh, he's asking me to stop referring to myself as a teacher who writes and start referring to myself as a writer who teaches. And that there's an important difference. We'll talk about that maybe another day. But I guess I want to, before we get into uh, this episode, number five, with the brilliant and funny Annie Fetter. Um, I wanna I wanna get into a, a conversation I was a part of this week that made me feel some type of way and actually kind of knocked me off my blocks for a few days before I was kind of able to through reconnecting with community find what it was that kind of made me feel that way. There was a bit of a trigger for me, so um, I'm I'm not gonna rehash all the details. Um, I'm doing some writing to this effect, and I've got some material coming out in the next few weeks and months that I think will put a finer point on it for you. But it kind of comes down to this. So, for the better part of two decades, I taught ethnic studies from the shadows, feeling like I constantly needed to rationalize, legitimize, explain, conceal justify my decision to teach the students to love, value, and most importantly, research themselves. So I, you know, the way that this happened was I didn't have a whole lot of experiences studying uh, non-white history, culture, arts, literature in high school, through high school. And it was towards the end of high school, I started to really take an interest and felt myself really stymied and really shut down when I wanted to pursue this interest. So I went to college, this is where I discovered ethnic studies, shout out Catherine Rios. Um, Dr. Catherine Rios who taught the Chicano literature class that I took, shout out uh, Dr. the late, great, legendary Dr. Elisa Facio, who always believed in me as a thinker and an intellectual, and shout out to Dr. Bruce Bassoff, um, the, uh, the Jewish dude from New York City that really just kind of put the nail in the coffin that was my internalized racism. So again, I'll get to more detail about that later on, but suffice it to say that college changed me. So I came into teaching and had an opportunity to teach a class called Hispanic American History. And I got really excited about it. And so I started teaching it. But I found that the thing that really drove me in, from a content perspective in teaching young people was really... The ability to present to them a version of history and a a version of their history and culture that looked a little bit more like them, that sounded a little bit more like them, that related a little bit more to their experiences. And once I started doing that, and once I started to see the interest that they were starting to demonstrate, it was all I wanted to do. Now, uh, the curriculum in Denver Public Schools hasn't always been super amenable to this. Um, The syllabus that I was using in 2000, 2001 hadn't changed much since 1993. And when I came back to some of these old syllabi, they were either gone or largely unchanged um, in the last 20 plus years, almost 30 years, which, which is wild to me, right? But I taught this stuff anyway. I became really skilled in arguing that when I taught ethnic studies content that I was teaching the curriculum and more importantly teaching important skills and mindsets. So you know, there's a real skills focus, rightly so, I think, in a lot of social studies classes, Argumentation, evidence, context, point of view, um, those various skills that can really help our students become better thinkers in social studies. But what I did is I would bring in more of the material from black and brown communities and from ethnic history, from the history of American diversity. And a lot of this was from my classes, Uh, was influenced by the works of Howard Zinn, of James Lowen, the late James Lowen, rest in peace to him, that great philosopher king. A lot of it came from Ronald Takaki's book, A Different Mirror, which was a different look at U.S. history. So I was hiding. I didn't really speak openly about what I was teaching in class. I would close my door and then I would let it happen. And, you know, the way I kind of viewed it, the way I still sort of view it was that the American history syllabus that I was presented at various points in my career was incomplete. It, it didn't highlight the diversity of this country. It didn't tell the stories of everyone. And so that became really important to me. Um, now, I didn't directly challenge the system in that way. I, it, you know, it was more of a, a clandestino kind of approach. Um, I can't say whether that approach was the right choice, but there are a few things that I kind of knew. First of all, I had my own internalized racism, where at the end of the day, I just wanted to be liked, accepted, I wanted to have a stable job and not make too many, many waves so I could continue to do the thing for my students that would empower them and knowing on some level that if I somehow crossed the wrong person and was run out of the work, there was not a great chance that I'd be able to continue that work. So again, I don't, say, I don't say this to rationalize or legitimize it. I'm just kind of explaining where I think my mindset was when I was 24, 25, 26 years old and trying to teach. I also watched others, black and brown teachers, get run out of the profession for being unapologetically themselves. You know, these folks that were a little bit more combative than I was, a little bit more resistant than I was, I was pretty comfortable nodding in agreement and then going back and doing what I knew was right for kids. Others had a stronger sense of integrity than that. And I don't know which was right. I'm still in a job and they, did, they weren't. But at the same time, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what I lost along the way. Also, you know, growing up in a working class, um, lower middle class family, my dad used to talk a lot about retirement and sticking with a job so that I could have a pension and have the comfort that others didn't have and that we didn't traditionally have in my family. So every time I thought about leaving the profession, his voice was there reminding me. So after about eight years at the first school I was teaching at, um, I changed schools. And at that point, despite the fact that it was an international study school, it actually got harder to teach the material I believed in. You know, our program was small. It was meant to be a small school and the curriculum was so tightly defined that our students didn't get any kind of elective. There was no kind of flexibility in this schedule. And there's still this very elective mindset when it comes to ethnic studies classes. Um, and you know that's something I'm starting to realize has actually kind of taken root in youth culture as well. Depending on where my class is situated, students will find themselves choosing between a free period and my class and you know the kind of pressure that you put on young people I'm not actually super surprised when they choose a free period over taking my class even though in the long term I actually think my class saves their lives where a free period saves their semester maybe and so there was always that kind of reason and now my class is at the end of the day and I know a whole bunch of students have dropped the class because they want to have that that free time and I'm not I'm not criticizing it. I'm not saying that they're lazy for this. What I am saying is that between the things that they could choose in my class, the other things are more important, whether it's getting to a job, whether it's picking up siblings from school, whether it's getting home to help family members, whether it's just recovering from the microaggressions and the systemic racism that they have to deal with on a daily basis in in these schools. So, uh, but the, the fact of the matter is that getting into this program where every course was plotted out from grade six to grade 12, there just wasn't a whole lot of space to do this. So I started to bring ethnic studies courses into the classes. Um, teachers in my department didn't actively oppose it. Uh, they were just mostly passive and slightly dismissive about my approach. I remember the summer before I started, one teacher saying to me, you know, oh, yeah. So what you've been teaching? Oh, yeah. That, that all fits in with the class I was teaching, but w- demonstrated a real ignorance of the labor I needed to perform in order to make these very general classes culturally relevant. And I think that's the thing that folks with background in ethnic studies and social justice teaching um, experience is that we're often given the flexibility and said, yeah, yeah, teach whatever you need to, whatever engages the kids. That's all we care about is kids being engaged without actually thinking about the additional labor it takes to pull these things together. The only other ethnic studies teachers I know who teach it in high school, teach at other schools. They don't teach it at my school. I'm not in contact with local academics when it comes to course material. Social media gives me a way to follow what's being studied in ethnic studies program. And of course my passion for the subject results in me being extremely well-read. Like, you know, a lot of people do comment, wow, you really have studied this stuff. And, you know, I kind of like to respond with, well, yeah, probably about 30 years since I started valuing myself in the community that I grew up in. Um, I've spent a lot of time learning as much as I can about this stuff. It was exhausting though. And you know, again, it's not like anyone actively opposed what I was doing content-wise. They just kind of didn't get it. It's kind of like explaining poetry to engineers, right? Ooh, that sounds really cool. Or I'm just excited that you're excited. Um, I made references to curiarchy and, um, intersectionality so many times that one white colleague started to mock me when I did, I think she thought she was being funny. I thought I, and I think I played along with the humor and kind of ignoring the little, um, the little microaggression that came with it. Um, but really I didn't experience as much hostility in terms of the content I was teaching as it was just met with folks who were just oblivious of this history. So as you know, one of my favorite books is destiny disrupted a history of the world through Islamic Eyes" by Tamim Ansari. And you know, this uh, Afghan writer basically describes his experience serving on a textbook committee full of white consultants, where he said, mine was such the minority opinion that it was indistinguishable from error. So I doubted myself a lot, in that sense, but I still would teach the material. Um, when I started teaching AP World History, that made it a little bit easier, but I maintained the commitment and probably at times sacrificed content that was definitely going to be on the exam for content that might be on the exam. I saw a post on social media at one point that stated something along the lines of privilege is when your class, your history is required for graduation and mine is an elective. And that's kind of, there's definitely a pecking mortar in the teaching, teaching of history that is largely informed by internalized white supremacy and the notion that certain history you really, really need to know and other history is kind of extra. Then a few years ago, uh, schools in Washington started to have serious conversations about requiring ethnic studies for graduation. These schools, particularly in the Seattle-Tacoma area, shout out to the people I know in the great cities of Seattle and Tacoma, started to look around and, and see the diversity that they had. There was a long history of immigration from Asian countries into the Pacific Northwest. They had, uh, this, these communities had created a foothold and an impact on the history and culture of the place to the extent that they couldn't be ignored anymore. And uh, to say nothing of the fact that so many Northwestern um, United States, indigenous nations have called that region, the Pacific Northwest home for a really long time. So as these conversations started to pick up steam, there became this kind of belief emerging in, in certain circles that was saying, you know, we really need to be offering content that relates to the actual students that we teach that if we have diverse classrooms why have we not revisited the material that we are sharing with them it was pretty amazing something i had been talking about for years um, was starting to happen and I'd never really acted upon it there are a couple of times that I floated ideas by people with decision making power and you know I'm a little bit of an empath and so I can I can see them I could see them tensing up, getting uncomfortable, you know, wondering what kind of answer to give me, feeling like they were sort of under minor attack for me. I remember one person, I remember commenting to one person who was in curriculum for social studies that ethnic studies just doesn't seem to matter to people in this district. And he kind of scoffed and said, well, social studies doesn't matter in this district and that kind of took me off my game for a little bit because it made me feel like the complaint that I had was superfluous it was um it was petty it it was you know some it was an entitlement rather than erasure of the history and culture that I valued but when these conversations started to happen across the country starting in Washington this felt like victory was coming. Like there were research studies that, that heavily suggested that students of color in particular, who happen to take an ethnic studies course in high school, greatly increase their chances of graduating from college. Their performance on every type of assessment is superior. They're more engaged learners and they're more likely to go to college in the first place. Um, and I know that's what got me through college was being able to find courses being taught by amazing people in the University of Colorado Boulder's uh, Ethnic Studies Department, no CU Boulder, I'm not gonna shout you out. Um, but I will shout out the late Dr. Facio, Dr. Rios, I'll shout out um, Dr. Huda Hart and other instructors within that program that really made it um, a home for me and gave me something to shoot for. Then as a shift a few years ago in our master schedule, my principal asked what classes we should offer since we have room for electives. And for the first time, I got to teach ethnic studies, like actually ethnic studies class, not intro to social studies, but the content's all ethnic studies, not US history, but the content comes from ethnic studies. None of that. Um, It was on its own, on its own terms, without caveat qualifier or excuse so i enjoyed it i taught it three years and the radical joy that i felt teaching this material to my students started to feel kind of frivolous i wasn't used to claiming my joy and even felt kind of guilty that i enjoyed what i was teaching where others didn't seem to but things were starting to change. A couple of comments made by students in the class at the time. There was one student who said, who, had also, who was also enrolled in my AP World History class at the time, said, have you ever noticed how I'm different in AP than I am in Ethnic Studies? And I said, yeah, a little bit. And the uh, student just kind of said, yeah, it's interesting. And you know, realizing that that was a class that the student was much more motivated to engage with um, was highly instructive to me. There was another student who said, you know, that I love being able to learn this stuff in class I, and I don't have any background in it. And this was a student of color, but neither do the white students. Because what this student had gotten weary of was white students taking up a lot of space and having what felt like prior knowledge of a class that they hadn't taken before. Well, that wasn't the case with ethnic studies. They were all at the same starting line. So in a very real way, in my experience, teaching an ethnic studies course leveled the playing field. It was looking really good. And I was really optimistic. And now we're under attack again. So like... There's been this debate over CRT, which, I, you know, read Ibram Kendi's piece from The Atlantic where he talks about how the anti-CRE people are really just fighting with, they're just arguing with themselves. They're creating their, their like own positions that claim to be our positions and then arguing with those. And so I don't think this is a debate going on in good faith but I was in a gathering where we were talking about how we were going to address this. And I think, and I became really angry really quickly. And I think I know why. I think so many of us educators of color really do care about the presence of ethnic studies in in, in our schools, the presence of curriculum that that really encourages anti-racism, that really encourages inclusion and acceptance and the celebration of diversity. But not as many of us actually went through what I went through over close to two decades, teaching from the shadows, teaching in the dark, teaching subversively, And all of the insecurities and fear and apprehensions that came with that, a lot of people don't realize what that was like. And at the time that new programs started to emerge, at the time that research studies were gaining visibility that said, no, ethnic studies really matters. And this isn't new, right? Malcolm X... Taught us about the importance of learning our own history, um, and and as our in our history as being something that that is its own reward. Consciousness is its own reward. Corky Gonzalez of the Crusade for Justice here in Denver gave a speech where he argued that a person who knows who they are, culturally, historically, socially, who has a strong sense of identity, can really survive in any environment because they have strength and knowledge of self. And, you know, as the conversation turned towards showing love, teaching real history, and working hard to clear up misconceptions, I couldn't shake the feeling, and I still believe this, that the attack on culturally responsive education and critical race theory and ethnic studies and inclusion and equity and all this stuff. These are not good faith arguments. Not even close. And I realized that this is actually a full frontal assault. You know, back in the day, not a lot of us forced the issue. Um, when we were faced, I, should, I shouldn't say we, I don't know what others were doing. And I actually know that others, I, I know others who engaged this battle in a more confrontational way than I did. In a lot of ways, I wish that I had been as brave as they were when I was young. But when I was faced with pedagogical repression, I went underground. And that was hard. That was hard feeling like I had to hide what I was teaching, feeling like, man, I just really hope I don't run across any of the wrong parents who are going to say something and get me in trouble. I'm a, you know, I've, I've got my, my relationship. Eventually I had my child. And I had my own internal internalized, like colonization and self-hatred that, that, really kept me underground. I, I was angry about that because I just came out of the shadows. And I saw this, this little glint of victory that this might actually be something that happens, not just in my lifetime, but in my career as a classroom teacher. Well, the backlash from white supremacy has been real. It's threatening us, hoping to drive us back into the shadows. So here's the thing, I'm going back. The cost to myself of trying to navigate this system, of trying to dodge the threats to my students and community and myself and my history, communities of color in general, that, that cost was heavy, took a lot out of me. There are things that got broken in me as a professional from that era that won't ever be repaired and that I never get a second chance to address. I think about a lot of teachers, mainly white teachers, who've never really had to reflect upon their entire selves being under attack not just your job, not just your political views, not just even the population that you teach, but to feel like your entire being is under attack and to have this feeling that there are people out there that want to exterminate me. They want to end me and people like me. And I felt some type of way about that. Folks, we need to be able to have these conversations. We need to provide space for the outrage that some of us are feeling for the harm that's been done to some of us. There can be no conversation about any of these manufactured culture war battles without an understanding of how it has impacted those who have been fighting the longest and when I go on my social media and I see some of the ve- veteranos and veteranas, like, reflecting on the moment they were are in and still showing wisdom and sh- still showing an openness to learn and a willingness to be the change. I know that in order to be a good ancestor, I need space to talk about what th- this has done to me. And I know that I'm not the only one. Make the space, y'all, because we ain't going back. So it's time to pivot. Um, I got to tell you, I am pumped, thrilled, geeked, amped to bring you this conversation with Annie Fetter. So I first came across Annie Fetter's work through LaShonda Garrison, the Dodia Teacher of the Year for 2021. Um, when LaShonda came on our Two Dope Teachers in a, in a Mic podcast podcast, um, LaShonda described Annie's work as humanizing and culturally responsive math. These are phrases that I wanted to see together more often and almost never do. And you know, some of you may uh, sort of scratch your head at this title like human, humanistic math instruction, what is that all about? Um, I read Bob Moses's Radical Equations book and it really did disrupt my vision of not just math instruction, but of instruction more generally to the extent that a lot of those lessons were kind of lost on me um, until now. Um, I should also say I was first exposed to the instruction instructional practice of what do you notice? What do you wonder? This is Annie's kind of, um, you know, calling card. Uh, This notice and wonder approach was first shared with me by the Public Education and Business Coalition, but I didn't know how instrumental and revolutionary Annie was in developing that notion for math. And I'd been using the approach as a challenge to conventional ideas around standards and objectives in my social studies classroom and feel like I'm on the precipice of something real significant for my students. It is really transformative. And, and go and find Annie on YouTube um, and some of the ways she frames math instruction. So uh, we're gonna have this conversation that I, I think it's just fire. Uh, it's just so good. And she's so interesting and educated and intelligent. And she's been doing this for a really, really long time, even before we had the internet. So like just to give you a sense of what all this looks like. So, about Annie. Um, Annie worked on the National Science Foundation funded project that developed the first version of the Geometer Sketchpad dynamic mathematics software. and was a founding staff member of the Math Forum, an online math and math education community until it ended in 2017. Currently, Annie consults with schools, districts and states and speaks at conferences, encouraging a focus on sense-making and leveraging students' ideas. And he is an author of McGraw-Hill Education's new K-5 through textbook series, Reveal Math, and works at the 21st Century Partnership for STEM Education while continuing Math Forum's research and outreach. And his very first Ignite talk, which this is on YouTube, Ever wonder what they'd notice has been used in countless PD sessions around the world. And really check these out because these are going to change everything that you believe about teaching and learning. Um, As a person, Annie reads a lot. Uh, Annie is an unapologetic beer snob, sings and plays bass at bluegrass jams and in an all-girl band, plays ice hockey goalie and bakes sourdough bread, and is the mother of two of the best dogs a cat lover could ever have. I give you. The inimitable, the in- Ooh, let me try that again. I give you the inimitable, brilliant, fun, and fearless Annie Fetter. Well, folks, it, it, I'm so excited for this conversation that you're about to hear. Um, I am here with Annie Fetter, Um, one of the most disruptive people I've come across um, in this cyber world that has enabled me to get connected with folks. So, um, Annie, welcome to Habitually Disruptive. Thanks.
1: Great to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited. So I have to give a little backstory on this. Um, I learned about your work just a few months ago. Like I've not, you know, I'm not not in math instruction. I teach social studies. Um, But as Colorado State Teacher of the Year, I've had the opportunity to just meet some really, really dope, incredible people. And one of those incredible people was the Department of Defense uh, Teacher of the Year, LaShonda Garrison. And over the course of a conversation with LaShonda, uh, who's a wonderful, wonderful person. shes I think she's taught every grade from like K through 12 and really brings this kind of humanizing perspective to all the work that she does. So she was talking about math and she's done um, some seminars on culturally responsive and uh, humanizing math instruction, which um, those are words I never thought I would see together in in print. And I said, that's a really cool approach. He's like, have you heard of Annie Fetter? I said, I have not. Who is Annie Fetter? And LaShonda says, well, go on YouTube um, and, and look for these. So so the, the ones that really grabbed my attention, uh, my favorite was the alternative to SWBAT. And you're speaking my love language on that. And I want to kind of talk about that a little bit because when I was in graduate school, I learned that standards-based instruction is only one approach. That <laughs> it's not the be-all and end-all. Um, so you won me over there, um, Annie, and possibly corrupted me for being a teacher for the rest of my career. How do you feel about that?
1: I'm I'm totally cool with that. That's that's because <laughs> uh, I assume I won you over for all the right reasons, right? You know.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, just uh, well, first first of all, is is your your personality on, you know, on the videos and on the seminars that you do. You're so engaging, you're so fun, you're so human. Um, but also the, the deep trust that you encourage teachers to have in their students to learn difficult things. Um, the, there's a story that you shared that I would love to have you share right now um, about being in a learning space where you were told that these were not students that could learn math. Or they could learn this concept, and you kind of proceeded to make it different. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? I love the story.
1: Yeah, one of the the first I was going into an eighth grade classroom to teach a problem solving lesson, and and I had had the teacher in uh, in professional development with me, and I'd worked in other classrooms in the school, but I hadn't been in her classroom yet. Uh, she was a science teacher being forced to teach math, and I think was a little grumpy about it. But uh, I don't know why you would be. um, And so she said, "Well, could you do a problem-solving lesson?" I'm like, "That doesn't really narrow things down." But yeah, I can. And and she said, "And just so you know, these are our lowest eighth graders, so don't expect too much."
0: Mm. I said, "Okay,
1: I'll I'll take care of them." Um, And instead of going in there and like giving them a typical math problem with gobs of words, I uh, it was a problem about Teresa's bathroom floor. She's going to retile it, but I just drew a picture of Teresa's bathroom floor on the board and said, tell me everything you can about that. And the, and the kids came up with this great list that, you know, I do this problem with teachers and they don't come up with anything the kids didn't come up with. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the kids can observe all the stuff. Um, and then we went on and solved the problem and there was a fire drill in the middle of the period also. Of course there was, because of course there was, of course there was. (laughs) And, um, that happens to me a lot. I mean, a lot. do
0: you think that's, do you think that's a system intervening and saying, "Uh uh, we can't, no, we I can't don't know. It's happen. just, I
1: just have good timing, I guess. There's I get authentic math different...
0: instruction
1: happening. We can't allow this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we ended up sort of solving the problem and then the kids uh, for homework, they went home and wrote down everything they remembered that had happened in class. So like there's homework everyone can do. Right. Which is, I mean, yeah. in general, homework shouldn't be a thing for lots of reasons. But yes. um, if you're going to give homework, you shouldn't give homework that makes kids cry, right? So uh, <laughs> it's
0: preferable. So that, yes.
1: That's uh, And the teacher was just amazed that, that her kids were engaged in doing mathematical thinking the entire period, and yeah. she'd never seen that. And, and I was like, I, I, I can tell you why. First off, she didn't believe in her kids. But second off, yeah. she's giving them things they can't do. And then I, I didn't actually get to see her teach math. So I yeah. don't know what, you know what she would have done. But she was just amazed that her kids could do all this stuff. Wow. And I'm like, well, if you, you know, present it the right way, um, yeah. instead of asking them to do things they can't do, then yeah, they'll, they'll do math.
0: Yeah. 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 So talk a little bit about the right way.
1: Well, the main deal is how do you give kids access to mathematical thinking? So, yeah. uh, people think that math, if you're good at math, it means you find numerical answers to things really fast. Mm. Like that's everybody and their mother go to a barbecue, whatever, they're going to tell you that, oh, yeah, that person's really good at math because they can do, and if you ask them, well, why is that? Oh, they're really good at arithmetic, basically, is what it boils down to, and they're really super fast at it, Um, and so in math class, we give lots of problems that are kind of hard, and they involve lots of figuring things out and, and, you know, sort of making sense of what's going on, not just doing arithmetic, and you've got some kids in the class who are super good at figuring it all out and then doing the arithmetic and you have other kids who are trying to figure out what arithmetic to do Mm. because they don't know there's the whole figuring out piece um so that so the thing i'm trying to do is get people to make the figuring out piece an explicit part of doing mathematics so so doing mathematics isn't just doing arithmetic or writing equations and solving them it's the figuring out of what's going on here and that's you know a lot of people don't even realize your good kids are already good at this and your bad kids are never going to get good at it because we don't practice it. They don't even know it's wow. a thing. So, wow. so it's a big deal.
0: That's so deep. This is, um, it's, it's a little jarring as, as a person who got good grades in math. I got good grades in math. Um, I was that student is like, Oh, I'm good at math. Cause I can do calculations and come up with answers and do it fairly quickly. But the more I've followed your work and the more I've let that kind of, Soak. The more I realize, I don't really know math, (laughs) and these conversations, and and just kind of getting acts, like getting getting familiar with some of your approaches, um, they're really deep. How much of um, your own background and identity has kind of brought you to this place? So, in terms of what kind of a student you were, in terms of what math what math was for you and what it became how did that happen
1: i think math for me was just like math for you was i can get lots of answers to lots of things so i was a super good math student um i went to a small rural school uh things were not super challenging they weren't Mm. prepping kids to go to college necessarily uh they were prepping kids to be good citizens and and get jobs and stuff and uh and so I was like, I can get answers to stuff. And I think along the way, I was making a lot of sense out of mathematics, but I didn't really know that. Mm. And then when I got to calculus, which I took by myself with the teacher my senior year of high school, because I was the only kid who sort of gotten there, yeah. um, when I didn't know how to figure things out, I didn't have strategies for dealing with it. Like I didn't know that okay. sense making was a thing. I had yeah. sort of done it subconsciously for so long. And so, yeah pretty much all the stuff that I talk about and promote is stuff I never did in school. And I might've hated because I was already good at finding the answers. Like, why are you changing yeah. this for me? Just yeah. let me find the answers and then leave me alone. Right. Yes. I'll just sit at the back of the room and do my homework before I go home and whatever. Yeah. So, right. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, why it changed one thing I'm really curious about it, because if, if I had gone into teaching math after college, which was the plan, because I was employable, I would have taught just the way I was taught, which is mm. it's called I do, we do, you do, right? So yep, that's right. That's right. Write some things on the board and yep. then we're going to do a few together and it's all going to be great. And then you're going to go home and do one through 30. Off. And if
0: I'm really mean, I'll make you come up to the board and do it in front of everybody.
1: <laughs> Maybe, but almost never. That would have been my radical move, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and not, and that's not done for any good purpose in many cases. <laughs> no. So I just would have been that teacher and, and the the things that I've engaged in through the years, you know, shifted me. And one thing I'm really interested in is teachers who um, believe in the things that I believe in, that, that mm-hmm. children should have to think and work together yeah. and actually like learn how to sort of puzzle out mathematical things, How do they shift from probably being taught the way I was taught and having this cultural vision of what looks like teaching math, which is covering the whole board with equations and then yeah. expecting kids to magically do it how do yeah. they shift to someone who is much more sort of student oriented like what experiences yeah. Yeah. did they have in their their life about that because i think it's a really interesting thing i was sure in 10th grade that i could have been a math teacher like right that minute right like, then because i knew exactly how to do it you stand up there you do the things which i could yeah. already do yep. you watch people do the things i could do that and then you send them home with things <laughs> That's, that's and you tell them sometimes.
0: whether they and you tell them whether they did the things right or wrong.
1: Yeah. 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 Like, that's it. So <laughs> uh, yeah, 15 years old. And I'm like, I'm not. I, I, yeah, I got I mean, this.
0: That, that's work. that's so interesting, because I, I attended a conference really long, probably about 15, 16 years ago. And there my my friends, Darren and, and Annie, something about Annie's is just amazing. Uh, but my friends, Darren and Annie, did a presentation on addressing conflict in the classroom. And what they really talked about, what they were really talking about was how you make the learning process fully engaging and fully accountable as a, as a result of, of being engaging. And uh, they started with a question, which was, do you trust your students with what you are teaching them? Um, And as you kind of talk, I think what, what you're pointing towards is no, we actually really do need to trust them with what, they're supposed to learn and trust that they will get engaged if the approach is correct and that it's it's a whole experience. It's not just calculate and then get on your phone, right? Um it's it's that kind of thing. Um or have your so, phone
1: calculated for you because or you have your phone calculated a picture for you. of a math problem and it'll spit the answer out to you. And that's super interesting and helpful, right? I mean like,
0: yeah, re- as if yeah. that's all well, of math. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as as the father of a 16 year old, like definitely I'm aware of all these things that are out there. And but what's also really fascinating is how so many students like they don't want to do that necessarily, but they don't know what else to do. Um, And and math is such an emotionally triggering subject for a lot of students in high school that I'm aware of right now um, that that to your point, the making sense piece. There's so many things, so many gems you just dropped, like the idea that you're, you're great until you have to actually work through something. And then if you don't have strategies to work through lack of clarity, confusion, or just, you get stuck, it's hard. Um, that sense-making process is, is such an important thing. Um, so I, I consider this work that you've put out there and there's a, there's a series of, of great stuff and folks like go on youtube this is amazing stuff and these are short videos and everything from um kind of general questions of pedagogy and praxis that really appeal to me like ever wonder what they notice um, that you did at the math forum at nctm uh, the power of ideas these are things that i think are are transcendent but you always hear that this isn't doable in math that you can't do that kind of thing, but hidden decision-making in the math classroom, um, a piece that pops up um, also at the math forum. I consider this to be really disruptive. Um, Do you you see yourself as a disruptor?
1: Well, I think all of the... sort of all of those five minute videos are like ranting about something in a way.
0: And, you know, <laughs> Maybe that's why right? I like them. <laughs>
1: ranting is about being disruptive is saying, look, we're doing a thing that's not the best thing we could be doing. And I'm not saying that all of my videos tell you the best thing you could be doing, but sure. if they sort of ask like, hey, wait a minute, this is going on. And that's, yep. ki- and how's it working out for us, right? Not so well, probably. Um, yeah. And like, what should we be doing? And, and the fact that, you know, we are teaching little humans, You know, and and, uh, so I think it is it is disruptive in a way, but it's they are in a sense, fun. They're five minutes. Right. Uh, I consider them. I think one of the best uses for them is um, as conversation starters at the beginning of professional development. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a conversation about why do we teach in math, math and literacy completely differently in in K-5 schools? So it's the same teacher, say, teaching both, but they look completely different. Why is that why why isn't sense making as big a piece of math as it is in literacy because it's a huge piece of literacy instruction right And yeah. so yeah. it's just sort of a reminder. show that video and go like, okay, let's let's have a conversation about what we just watched because that's really what yeah. we want to talk about here in our school or district or whatever. I think yeah. they're super good for that. They're disruptive conversation starters um, yeah in, in I love scene. that point
0: uh, because I think you know as I kind of think about, the, the practice of disruption, um, what what always happens, and, and I'm guilty of this too, uh, when I run into an idea that's disruptive to me, I get a little defensive and I'm like, okay, well, what do you think we should do? And And I feel like that's in many ways putting the proverbial cart before the horse because it's kind of like, well, we can't even get to what we should do if we won't address some really important questions that are in front of us. So ranting is disruption. I'll make sure I let my uh, principal know that you said that and you're an expert. And, you know, yeah, no, just kidding. My, my, my principal actually appreciates my disruption. And so I, I kind of, uh, for now, I kind of appreciate that. Um, is, so you, you spoke a little bit about your background, uh, growing up in a rural area, growing up in an area that wasn't always preparing students for college, that there were other sort of focuses there, and um, and it sounds like you were academically a really successful student. Were were you a disruptor then? Um, and how did you sort of learn in general, kind of the practices of disruption?
1: I, I was absolutely a rule follower. Like I was good at school. I was you know a good athlete. I was in yeah. the I had the lead. What sport? I want to know what sport. I played field hockey, basketball, and softball.
0: Yo, so, that's dope. Yeah,
1: yeah. So Sorry, covered it all, funny. and then did yep. the lead in the High School Musical. You know, it it was a teeny tiny school, and I graduated with thirty six kids. So it's like yeah. you need people to be good at more than one thing, otherwise we don't <laughs> have those things. You know, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so I just you know I did everything I was asked to do to, and yeah. got good grades, and mm-hmm. you know, and I, I don't I don't think I was really disruptive at uh, at all. Part of that's being Introverted, you just like yeah. keep yourself and do your stuff, yeah. and nobody bothers you, and you're cool. Right? Yeah. and um and that was, you know, that that was kind of it. So I don't, I didn't think of it as disruptive at all. And um I think um I don't think I was really, I don't think I ever really thought about being disruptive until uh, the job that I got after college, which was not math teaching like I thought it would be, but it was yeah. uh, developing um, supplemental math materials to sort of go with middle school and high school geometry um, at a NSF project at my college. And, uh, my, one of my college classmates was writing a piece of what became called dynamic geometry software. So this whole idea of like, oh, we would, here's a tool to teach math differently. Um, and I started teaching workshops for teachers about how to use that. Now, if you're teaching someone how to use a new tool, it's one thing to use the tool, but it's another to be like, why would you use the tool? Like mm. It means you have to teach differently because you have this different tool available. Yeah. Yeah. What does it mean to shift things so that kids are doing more of the thinking basically? Yeah. So yeah. I guess that's kind of when I became a disruptor, I didn't think of it that way, but mm. I was asking people to think differently about how they teach. Because um, it, it was not telling anymore. It couldn't just be telling because you had this tool that let kids go, oh, what if? we do this, that, or the other thing. What's always true. What's never true. What's, you know, how can I figure out that relationship? That sort of thing. Yeah. It was very student oriented. And we were reminded, you know, teaching workshops, you're teaching them to use a tool, but you're not really, you're teaching them to think about what it means to have students thinking about math and asking questions wow. and stuff. So that was, that was huge. It's yeah. a great opportunity. Yeah. And it was a really big deal.
0: So. This is what's so interesting is as, as I meet folks that I view as being really disruptive. One thing that kind of stands out, just listening to you talk, is that it seems like when you stumble acro- ap- when you stumble across a, an important question, like when a question pops up for you, and it's a question worth evaluating, it seems like it seems like you're sort of wired to continue asking that question. That it's it's almost like Getting to the truth of the matter of what we're doing is is critical to you, and and as you say, it's not consciously disruptive, but it is a matter of having a center, and that center seems to be, well, it's not enough. And you know, as teachers, we get new curricula dropped on us all the time, and uh, one of the one of the sins of the education establishment is that will invest a lot of money and time into curriculum, but then we won't see it through and we won't get down to this really important question that you're posing. It's like, not just like, how do you make this fit into what you're doing, but what are the implications of adopting a curriculum, a program, an approach for all of your teaching? And I think that's a question that isn't asked. So I have a question about the status quo. I'm going to reframe this question a little bit. So, why is Annie Fetter not like a millionaire who's, um, or billion, maybe you are a billionaire, I don't know, um, whose ideas are in every single school from ECE to 12th grade? What is it that seems to be such a tough sell when it comes to shifting math instruction from calculation and solutions and answers to making sense and embracing a process?
1: Yeah, I would absolutely be a billionaire if I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> or, or maybe, I mean, I'd have the chance, you know, I don't know. I'd feel like one anyway. Maybe um, we can
0: find it here. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, it's a, it's a super complicated question. And um, I think the if, if people want to sort of uh, see a way to address it, when Matt Larson was the president of NCTM, he did an Ignite talk about that. Okay. Um, and it really sort of addresses, we have this cultural vision of what it means to teach math, which is exactly what I thought. I knew everything about it when I was 15. Yeah, like, that's
0: what te- that's what everyone's vision. And in terms of what is. was being taught, you did know, like you did know what math instruction looked like in that space at that time. Yeah. And and
1: every single adult on this planet, or at least in this country, has the same vision. Well, almost every single. Right. So, that's <laughs> right. why you know, I love it's imba- being at the it's cocktail party. In. Yeah, and I say, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a math educator. I teach math teachers, you know, and they're like, they either sort of go, eh, or they're like, <laughs> ooh. And then they'll either they'll ask me questions or they'll say, oh, I never liked math. And I'll go like, I'm I'm sorry, that's true. You, you know, and they just they all have this vision of math isn't either they enjoyed it because, like you and I, they were good at getting answers in school. Yeah. Yeah. Or they hated it because they were not that great at getting answers and they just felt that pressure to do it and it yeah. you know, made them cry.
0: Right. And to do it fast and to do it right the first time. Yeah,
1: and like, oh, I'm not good at that because I can't get all the timed test, you know, questions done before the <laughs> clock runs out. I mean, how horrible is that, right? So, it's it's baked into our culture of what math teaching looks like. So even as we are trying to to shift, a lot of teachers are trying to make the shift of like, how else can we teach math? How can we how can we humanize mathematics? Um, you know, we can get into that whole thing. Yeah. Even then, the parents are like, oh, wait, you're not sending enough worksheets home with my kid. You know? And we're like, oh, did you love worksheets? Oh, I hated them. Why do you want your child to have them? But I mean, that's a real thing is people say, it you is. don't my really kid like enough homework um, and it doesn't look like the homework that I did. We're yeah. like, You hate math. Why do yeah. you want your kid to have the same experience? And that's, yeah. that's a hard nut to crack right there yeah. because they're sure if you're not teaching math the right way which is the way they were taught math, they can't reflect on the fact that it did not work. It has not worked in this country. It is not working for most people. For some people, it works just fine. Um, But for most people, they don't think math is their favorite thing. Yeah you know it, but yet they want it taught
0: the same way that's that's yeah. that's a conundrum it's so it, that is oh, wow that 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 hits real deep because uh, you know i've i've been teaching for 22 years and it's exactly as you say and um uh, not only in math but in a lot of subjects where it's like well i'm concerned that my kid doesn't have homework i'm like well maybe they can pursue other interests <laughs> you know they can yeah. be people so i i've got some pet theories about this um one of them, so there's, it I'll, in my doctoral program, there's a course offered that I'm really excited to take at some point called the History of Math Instruction. And essentially what it does is, I, I assume, I haven't seen the syllabus yet, but I assume it kind of studies like, why is math, math taught in certain ways at certain times in, in our history? and and I And I wonder about that larger dynamic, specifically competition, right? That every time we hear about our students low proficiency in math there are these like very fancy charts comparing us to other countries how much do you think that informs a lot of the status quo i think or am i overestimating well
1: no i think that's really interesting because (laughs) those those are the results we get because we teach math in this way that's very dehumanizing and very removed from any sort of critical thinking um (laughs) But yet people want to still keep teaching that way or think we should, we, the the royal we should be teaching that way mm-hmm. because somehow that's what math looks like. And they don't really, they're not connecting those like, right. oh, the bad scores are because they, they, it sort of comes from a deficit view of laying it on the kids. Like, yes. well, the kids don't work hard enough. Oh, they don't do their homework. Oh, they, so it's like somehow their fault, which removes the, the blame from the people who are not reflecting on the fact that that doesn't actually work for most people right that, you know math teaching right. I think that's that's hard too we're just it's not that yeah. we lack the ability to reflect but maybe it is but we just are so it's so culturally ingrained about what math yeah. looks like yeah. Um, yeah. and that only, oh and that some people are just born to do math and some aren't
0: right So that whole yeah. piece is
1: like you know actually we're, we're humans with brains that like are very big brains and we can te- think critically about lots of things. And, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think I was, uh, uh, talked to you in the past about, I was just reading this book about the history of Vermont and it was a yeah, young yeah. adult book. And the foreword was really super interesting. Cause it said, you know, we tend to teach history as a laundry list of facts. And on the one hand, we do want everyone to know the dates, the names, the places we want them to know that, but what the teaching of history really should be is what happened why did it happen? How did that impact things then? How do we have to think about it now? And how does that make us think about the future? Like, that's the actual interesting part of it. And in in a way, you know, and that was like, yeah, because for me, history class was learning facts and figures. and I was super good at that. Like, I could memorize stuff for the test and then spit it all back out for you. Um, But if you'd asked me to think about why did it matter that this happened? Or like, you know, tell me about, Napoleon believed in fraternity and liberty and equality and yeah you know, and and I can even tell you why I still remember that you know 40 some years later right. but um but it's like I never thought about or was asked to think about why was that important how was that different from what they had been used to and what yep. were the actual implications I was just told to memorize that
0: yeah okay. yeah and I, I've taught AP World History. I won't be teaching AP anymore, and it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a divorce that I need um, from advanced placement world history. Um, but one of the questions, you know, that to, to, to your point about critical thinking and reflection, like these are skills that need to be practiced. It's, it's, it's. Everyone's got the p- capacity for it, but if you're not set up to practice those skills and sharpen them and get into the habit of using them, I think. I think they rust and they fade. And then we have adults that won't get vaccinated. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, and so I always like to pose the question of, so here's the rights of man and the the citizen, you know, how do we get from that to the, to the Napoleonic Wars? How do you think this happened? How does it go from being about freedom to being about empire building? And those are the conversations that I think are really important in history. Um, I want to bring you to this point that uh, you've mentioned a couple of times about humanizing math instruction, um, and I just love those words together. They, they're, they're disruptive as a phrase. Um, what does it mean to humanize math instruction?
1: Well, if you really want to learn about it, go uh, read the work of Rochelle Gutierrez, who's doing, um, I mean, there are other people as well, but start with her. She's been doing a lot of work around that. Um, but it basically means that we come as individual people to mathematics and we bring things. um, And it's not just, you know, math has very much been like, here are the facts and here are the the algorithms and the procedures. I will show them to you because I am blessed with being the person in charge. And then you will repeat them and everything will be wonderful. And that's just, and, and also the ways the algorithms and the ways that we're talking about are generally like, Old dead white guy algorithms right? Right. So <laughs> historically so what does it mean that we can all bring ourselves to math so there's tons of math that people use every day and I'm not talking balancing your checkbook which I'm guessing right. almost nobody actually does anymore because right. no one does it for them or something um, right but you know just yeah the there's ways, apps there's programs that yeah, do that for you yeah that that's not what math is but how do we shift like what is math and what are say Um, indigenous ways of using mathematics that Mm. are perfectly valid that nobody ever is going to teach you in a classroom because it's not fast enough or it's not I mean I'm not gonna say not white enough but um, (laughs) but but it's just not it's not a thing anyone pays attention to but it's perfectly valid so how do we let kids and cultures bring themselves to the learning of mathematics Um, and that's you know that's part of like what does it mean to actually think mathematically? And, and a lot of what we think of doing math, people think because of the way we've culturally taught math, math is about doing math to be done with it. Like it's yeah. something that you finish really quickly and then yep. you put it yep. aside and go do more interesting things. Yep. Whereas yep. The, the doing of math is actually like looking at things and thinking about them and wondering stuff and, and trying ideas and seeing what works. Um, and that is not something that gets valued in most classrooms or you know, just so kids can't be themselves. They can't bring their whole selves and go like, wait, time out, how come that works like that? Or wait, I found another way to do it, you know, yeah. and then oh like no, 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 your way's not fast enough. So throw it out. Right. Yeah. No, what does it mean to let people bring themselves to math and also to be able to reflect on how was math for me today? What did I learn? What was interesting, yeah. you know, and we're just not. We're just really bad at that. You know? We really are. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, school is not good at, at sort of taking in the whole child and letting them That's be right. themselves. That's and right. math is kind of the worst. Like, yeah. you know, just do my, I just no, 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 don't bother with that. Do it my way and you'll be yeah. done and you'll get the right answer. Right.
0: Because we have a scope and sequence that we need to keep up with. We have pacing guides we need to do in, in our district here in Denver, we're talking about unit and lesson internalization, which is gross. And it's, and it's a way to try to ensure that everybody is in the same place at the same time in the curriculum, regardless of where you teach or who you teach or what your own kind of context is. It's, it's, very, it's like the fantasy is to make it mechanized and automatic as opposed to exploring all of its possibilities.
1: Right. Or taking into, you know, you were saying there are days when you start a conversation in your class that's your launch and you end up spending the whole day on it because that's where the kids go, right? That's what becomes interesting to them. And, and, you know, so you occasionally want, you walk into math class every day with a mathematical goal. I'm hoping that this is a thing we know more about by the end of today. But some people are like, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the students will be able to do this by right. the end of 42 minutes. It's like, That's if right. you knew that, like you wouldn't need this job. We, you know, you'd be magical. Um, oh yeah, you would be. <laughs> but instead, what do I want kids thinking about? You know, and, and, and that sort of thing. I, I think, you know, there, a lot of districts do face that pressure of having pacing guidelines and stuff because I know in, uh, in the school district of Philadelphia at one point in time, I think they said as many as a third of the kids change schools during the year so, you really do need everyone to be pretty much in the same place. You, you have to have a co- because you're trying to serve a population, a very tr- sort of transient population in some cases. But, you know, how do you do that and still uh, account for the fact that you have little human beings? You know, you don't teach math, you don't teach third grade, you teach people. Um, but how do, we, right. how do we shift to that, you know, and, and people who have interests? And that we'd like to have more
0: interests. People get so annoyed when I answer the question that way. What do you teach? I'm like, um, teenagers. (laughs) And that's not what I mean. And I think I really offended somebody at a church function years ago when I answered that way. I'm like, no, I'm not actually being sarcastic, sarcastic, like, like, because the subject I teach is secondary to the humans that I'm in the room with. And I, I'm not even comfortable saying that I teach them. Like, I, I feel like, you know, they're, they're impressed when I know things. And I'm kind of like y'all. If you know, if this cup of water sits out for six days, stuff is just going to accumulate on it, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's why I know more. I've just more stuff has accumulated on me because I've been on this planet longer than you. But I, I see it as this kind of reciprocal process because I imagine, and I've tried, and we'll talk about notice and wonder after the break. But I've tried to do notice and wonder approaches in history. And man, those class periods are so engaging and so interesting and so fun. And I come out of it feeling like, man, I've, I learned so much this period. And it's just such an interesting thing. Um, I've a, I have a little follow-up question because you, you said balancing your checkbook and all these kind of manufactured rationales for math that don't keep up with technology. What do you make of this kind of this push—it's this new fascination in the world with financial literacy.
1: Uh, oh, that's man. How many? How much time do you have? I
0: man, mean, whatever just, you got.
1: <laughs> well, it just—you know—we we do. We think of uh, so the financial literacy class is the one that the the um, the dumb kids take, right? The non-college prep kids. That's right. In, in traditionally speaking, yep. um, but yet if you look at how is wealth in this country uh, built. Part of it, it helps to just have wealthy ancestors. But part of it is there that you. people who understand the financial <laughs> systems and know that, um, historically speaking, investing in the stock market works over time, um, more than stuffing it in the mattress and more than buying CDs or bonds. And then kids who don't even know that CDs and bonds are things, like yeah. that there's a whole financial world out there of like, how how could you become financially independent? You don't have to be a billionaire. How You make it so that, you know, you're not constantly worried about money. There are ways besides working more Mm. that some people have access to, not everyone. Everyone theoretically has access to it.
0: In theory, Um, right.
1: You know, and it's increasing with apps that you can, oh, click and buy a stock on your phone, right? And that's, but, you know, how many people don't own stock in this country? Maybe through a retirement fund. Um, But I think just having kids understand how how does the system of money work in this country and why do some people have so much of it? How did they get it? You don't have to invent 27 things and you don't have to have been a Rockefeller. No, nope. what are, what are the ways that people do that and, and giving kids a vision? Cause I think they just, they don't have any idea. I mean, I, I gave a math yeah, problem to some high school kids one time they were helping escort people around a school for a Saturday workshop. And they're like, Oh, we'll do some math while we wait around. And they came back to me. It was a math about, you know, do you put, do you bury the money in the backyard or do you put a thousand dollars in the bank and then sit around? Yeah. And they came back to me and they said, so this problem suggests that the bank gives you free money. And I was like, yeah, it does. And I explained to them a little bit about, you know, it gives you some free money while it makes yeah. more free money from you. That's money, right, that's right. You know? but, and they had no idea and they're in high school and, that, and that's, yeah. that's it's fine, I'm, it's not their fault, but like no, how come more people don't know how the financial system works. And I think it's yeah. related to um, it's related to a lot of power stuff, but it's also related to one of the things that I'm interested in in math is that I want kids to make sense of things and to know that they can make sense of things yeah. and that there are things to make sense of because otherwise you have a lot of people who have power over you because they'll say, oh, yeah. let me explain to you how that works. That's and right. some people, if there's a lot of numbers in something, people just let the other person explain it because they're some like, I, I can't even. Yeah. No, I want they're, kids to go like, okay, so you told me this. Let me think on this. Let me yeah. try to make sense of that yeah. and yeah. not freak out because it has numbers in it or, yeah. or whatever. You know, how, how do you make kids ready to tackle things so that they have power too?
0: Yeah. And that comes back to bringing yourself into math and, you know, rooting, um rooting the learning process in full engagement and questions like I'm it it strikes me I'm always so humbled when students have questions because when when students have questions that means that student is invested now they're invested and I have a way to connect with them now that I wouldn't have known otherwise Um, we're going to take a really quick break Um, when we come back I'm going to have you talk about something that it looks like it gives you a lot of joy, um, when you're, when you're, when you've been doing it at, um, NCTM and when, you know, again on, on the YouTube, um, and that is the notice and wonder approach because I am absolutely, absolutely in love with this approach. And, um, and I would love to have you talk about it when we come back. <laughs> listener if you've made it this far into the episode perhaps you're enjoying this remix conversation about power culture and education and if that's the case please consider joining others like you educators community leaders activists scholars artists and youth by supporting the Tudo teachers and like podcast and productions on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can get on-air shout-outs, sneak previews, and early-released episodes, insider information on the happenings in Pudu Nations, and many other small benefits. The greatest benefit, though, is you enable us to keep bringing the fire. Because of people like you, we have expanded to two podcasts with the exit interview taking flight and forcing hard conversations about attacks on black educators. And we've added new features, including episode transcripts and a revamped website, all because of listeners like you. But that's just the beginning. Your support will open up new possibilities for us and for the communities we represent and advocate for. And at the $15 per month level, you receive a sticker. Yes, folks, a sticker. To support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash 2 teachers. That's patreon.com slash 2 dope teachers. So, people, welcome back to Habitually Disruptive. I'm Hedardo Munoz, your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year. And I'm talking to Annie Fetter um, about humanizing math instruction and that process. So, uh, Annie, right before we went to the break, um, we were sort of talking about students asking questions. And one of the, one of the topics that came up was the topic of... The um, of financial literacy, the new kind of um, fascination that we have uh, with instruction that is math related. Um, you you do this amazing work, and it's like magic to watch it happen and to hear it described. And then to try it is it's it's amazing. Like you, you sit like I I sat here um, as I kind of embraced it a little bit more wholly, um, thinking to myself can teaching be this easy? <laughs> like, it's like everything I want to see. It's a lot of student voice. Everybody's learning. Everybody's engaged. Um, it's funny. It's lighthearted, but then it gets serious. It's like all the things. So talk about notice and wonder.
1: First off, what you described is like, it sounds like it's human, right? What? Like a bunch of humans <laughs> in a classroom. Yes. Having a conversation <laughs> about something, you know, imagine yeah. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so notice and wonder actually started um, when I was at the math forum, which was a wonderful organization that sort of um, developed a math education community on the internet. And I I think it's, it's a long story, but it's one reason why math teacher Twitter is, is as strong as it is. Yeah. Um, Roots that go back before the web. Um, Anyway, so we were using the idea of noticing and wondering to look at student work, this idea of, you know, often when you look at a pile of math papers, you tend to sort them into like right and wrong and messy and neat. And and yeah. and it's uh, and part of that is because of the pressure to assign grades to things, yeah. Um, yeah. but also because we don't practice like what's actually going on in the student thinking. So this idea that you would notice things uh, about a student's thinking, and then that would let you wonder things. So instead of saying, yeah. oh, this one's super short, they hurried. You're like, oh, this student did not write very much. I wonder mm-hmm. if they ran out of time or i wonder if this is actually all they know so you're you're shifting from judging to sort of really being curious about a student's thinking Um, and we realize you know that's we want kids doing the same things about math problems Um, and that the uh, example earlier about teacher teresa's bathroom floor and you know asking kids what do you see about this picture well if i give them the problem about teresa's bathroom floor i want them to notice everything about that picture notice stuff, notice things that are equal, notice things that are different, notice rectangles, notice whatever, and then raise questions in their head. Oh, I wonder if that's going to be important. Oh, I wonder what if, why is the sink so big or whatever. And then you ask them a question about what to do. The problem in math is that a lot of kids think that the first thing that you do is a calculation. They do mm. realize you do all of that. What's going on here? I wonder what's true. I wonder what's not true. They that you are actually noticing and wondering. So, you know, the idea of doing it is not new. There, there are a lot yeah, of yeah. other um, organizations and people who have, you know, suggested things um, that look like this. Um, we sort of formalized it with those two words, and those two words are super important because asking what you notice is really different from asking what you know. Yes. Because knowing is that's a loaded word. But notice, like I can tell you what's right in front of me right now. And that's really, yeah. you know, you're asking yeah. kids, that's all I want you to do. What is yeah. right in front of you right now? Yeah. Um, which seems really simple, but is really important. And then what yeah. do you wonder? What are you curious about? Not what question are we trying to answer? Or what do you not understand? Right? What do you wonder encompasses What might we be trying to answer? What might be trying to find? What might you not understand? What might you want to know more about? Uh, You know, all of and wonder is really important. And um, we first ran into the word wonder, I think, in a a summer workshop we were doing with teachers and we were working with the Philadelphia Writing Project. And we read an article where a teacher used fifth grade teacher used um, what's something you're wondering as an exit slip for her uh, after her math things and this one kid who was a good kid I mean a good math student like he got all the right answers right he wrote I wonder if fractions only work with circles yes right so he she then realized at that moment that she had only been using examples of circles for fractions and here's this kid who's getting all the right answers who wonders do fractions only work with circles and and so that to us was like yeah that's the sort of thing you want kids to bring up not like I don't understand how to do this, that, or the other thing, but like, wait a minute, does this only work with that? Or what if you did this? Or um, what happens if the dog gets uh, bigger, you know, I, whatever you want that to come out and be part of the doing of math. You know, as, as yep. you were saying, how do we have those conversations where kids are curious about stuff? Um, yep. and so I think that, you know, it, it changes, it also is a super easy way for teachers to bring in the student voice Pretty easily, yep. And then there's a whole piece of what. What do you do with that, and what does it mean for both the teacher and students to get better at doing it? But I I think it was really powerful for me um, a while back when a couple of teachers posted on Twitter, or in some form, and basically said, "Noticing and wondering saved my teaching career." Wow, because it shifted from that thing of like I'm supposed to do all of this stuff because someone mandates it, to I am now having conversations with my students about mathematics because they are the ones bringing the questions um, and bringing the curiosity. Like you said, if they're asking questions, I'm in, like I'm ready to have that conversation. That's what I want to happen. How on earth would you do that in math? Well, you could not ask them if they have any questions because nobody has any questions in math. Like, nope, nope, we're all good. And then uh, what what would it look like for them to go like, well, I actually do have some questions. Oh, okay, let's talk about those questions. So it's a huge, it's a huge game changer for a lot of people just because it does it just it's a shift and it's um it brings in humans for one. Yeah. And
0: and also I would um I I would also say that if you want to know like the process of what notice and wonder looks like in in practice, Annie does a really phenomenal job of explaining it and guiding us through. There's also a couple, there's a couple of videos, if I recall correctly, that include Uh, students going through the process and kind of working through it or is it just you summarizing it i can't remember which it was. there
1: are so many videos i'm I'm so many (laughs) but but there are also there's several um there's a lot of people blog about it and talk about how it led to conversations in their classroom and and the sorts of prompt that they use to you know oh i'm hoping my kids will talk about this mathematical subject today so i'm going to use this picture and see what where the conversation leads us so yeah um i do know places where the kids do run it like they run the noticing wondering they collect it they call on their classmates they ask their classmates to clarify their answers so they can write them down um and and it's super powerful because it's like the kids can do that and the teacher can be dealing with whatever beginning of class stuff they have to deal with that right or homework And and how amazing
0: that is to have such a human and organic kind of approach to, to school. And, you know, I think about, but I I also think about like, my, my, my teacher brain goes to, oh, but what if they're not good at it at first? But I think that's kind of the point, right? That the more you do it, and the more you commit to it, the better you get at it. And to your point, If we're talking about the, I think I do, you do, we do thing, you know, it's kind of one of these things where, okay, maybe it initially is kind of teacher centered, but as they engage, they get better at it and they can just do it. And it's like, that's, that's what we're told we want to see in schools that that students are doing the work. I've, I've deployed notice and wonder in, um, in my classes, all my classes, regardless of topic, subject, grade level, whatever. And it's just really interesting to see them, you know, engage with this because it's new. A lot of them don't think it's actually school. Um, (laughs) A lot of them feel like we're just talking, right? We're just talking, but, you know, getting smarter along the way. But what I used to do is I would do it as like a, as like a do now, as like a warm up exercise. And then I would start panicking, because it was taking a really long time because kids had so much to say. And then what are we gonna do about our objectives? And what are we gonna do about the the lesson plan I spent all this time writing and all this kind of stuff. And I think coming across your work um, kind of suggested to me, well, then maybe this is the approach. Maybe that's what's creating struggle is that this is such a good approach and I'm rebelling against it because of my training.
1: Yeah. it's such a um it's such a thing that we we want them to bring and we want them to think it's not math i mean i i have a um i can't find the quote right now but a kid who said like i love doing noticing and wondering because it's not so it because it's not math and it lets me think without stress sort of thing and it was yeah. just, on the one hand, it breaks your heart Yeah. that, uh, oh, oh, wait, I, I did find it. I like them because we don't have to do math at all. We just need to think on it without stress. Wow. So on the one hand, it's super sad that for this kid, math is just stress. That's the yeah. word he brings up. And that he, that but then he thinks this isn't math because it's not stressful. So it can't be math. Yeah. Right. And, and it's like, yeah, no, bring, bring yourself as opposed to walking in and being like, Oh, I'm going to have to do stuff that like, I don't know how to do, or it's too fast yeah. or it's confusing or whatever. Someone,
0: someone's going to judge me. Other kids are going to finish faster than me. I'm not as smart yeah. as them. And it just snowballs.
1: Yeah. And it also implies when you ask kids what you notice, wonder uh-huh. they can all do that. And it implies that everyone has ideas in math class, which is not, if I'm asking kids to do a problem, I already know some of those kids can't answer that problem. Like how fair is that? Like yes, I do want them all eventually to be able to answer that problem. That's why we have. That's why we teach math and, and have math instruction. Um, but to you know to give things that I know some kids can't do, yeah. instead of asking, oh, what do you notice and wonder about this thing? Like every kid can do that. And um, I, I have a my teacher friend Melanie Nagel. Like if she asks her kids to tell her something about a problem and they kind of give, she teaches special education um in junior high and her kids if her kids are like i don't know she's like all right we need to take a notice and wonder break because you obviously hadn't haven't had enough time so she just says them it's not that you don't have ideas you haven't had time to think about it so i'm going to take a moment and we're going to notice and wonder some more because you all do have ideas right just that it's that implication to kids you are bringing something that should be part of this classroom and we need to we need to give it space that's huge for kids yeah, so big, really? yeah. so big.
0: I wanna, th- this is, you know, um, it's interesting because I, I've, I've been really reviewing just kind of the work that's available on, on your approaches and I'm all in, I've been all in since the first video to be honest. Um, and it represents a pretty monumental shift, not just in math instruction, but I think in the way that we approach school, when you yeah. talk about math being stress, uh, school is stress and, you know, and and it, it kind of creates a lot of, a lot of pressure. Um, so, so I, I want, I want to have you talk a little bit about where are you seeing kind of promise for a more human, humanizing approach to math instruction? Um, what is making you feel like, Hey man, we're, we're just about, we're really about to break through and, and change everything that's happening? And then what are the aspirations you have long-term as far as these approaches to math instruction?
1: Oh, that's a simple question. You know. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that's that so many people, uh, so say I'm at a math conference when you could go to math conferences, right? Maybe yes, <laughs> <they won't look
0: laughs> when out. those were a thing.
1: Um, and that people come up and go like, oh, I, I use Noticing Wondering, it's so awesome. Um, and I'll just say, tell me something that it does for you. Like what, and they just talk about how their kids are excited about doing math. Like they come into math excited to share their ideas. And and so, you know, I meet people all the time who are like, I do this thing and it has changed my classroom. It has made me and my students more excited about math. You know, Twitter has the same thing. People are noticing and wondering. People have noticed wonder walls in their classroom. People have painted Uh, their cupboards to say notice and wonder. Like they just, it's just this stance that people are taking um, of like, no, this is how we should be learning everything. I I happen to live in the math universe, but, um, but I'm happy to share with everyone else because it's not, you know, it's not special for math. It's just, it's what should be the point of education. Kids going like, oh, look at that. Oh, I wonder what's true about that. And like, you know, that's what you want kids to do is I want kids to look at any math situation and go like, huh, I don't I don't really know what the answers to these things are, but let me think about this and to yeah, have ideas yeah. as opposed to looking at things and being like, nope, don't know, haven't learned that yet. Yep, like yep, as yep. if it's a sort of a, a thing. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's just, it's exciting. And, and uh, I'll just, you know, remind you and all teachers that the work that I do and the fact that I'm sort of uh, as I tell my family, who are not mathematicians, they're all artists. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm super famous in a tiny little universe, but that's because <laughs> teachers are doing the things that I talk about, yeah. and they're yeah. noticing that it makes a difference. So that's mm-hmm. the the only reason that what I do is important is because people go do it, and then they go, yeah. "Whoa!" Let me yeah. tell you what yeah. just happened third period, you know, or something. Wow. And it just, and they're seeing that, and they're they're telling their friends, right? And they're yeah. because it is making a difference, and it's part of a shift that you know, a number of people are working really hard at right now yeah. to shift what does it look like to uh, teach mathematics, but to change what does it look like to do mathematics? What does doing mm. mathematics mean? It really means thinking mathematically about lots of different things. It doesn't mean yeah. cranking out a ton of answers in a right. specific amount of time. And I yeah. think that's, that's a super important uh, part is you know, for kids to realize doing mathematics really means asking tons of questions and answering some of them, you know, yep. but really asking those questions. I mean, that's how, that's how anything in this world gets done is someone asks a ton of questions and then they start trying to answer some right. of them, which of course just leads to more questions. Yep. So you never, you get ahead, but you never really get way ahead because nope. Um, nope. there's always more questions. Well, the so. smarter
0: you get, the more questions you have, right? Like the more you oh, learn, the more questions absolutely.
1: you have. I mean, just this idea, of, you know, I, I've been talking to some groups of kids recently and being able to say to them, mathematicians actually spend most of their time asking questions. Yeah. You know, wow. you spend yeah. most of your time answering questions that somebody else asked. And that's yes. But what it really is, is the asking of questions. And then if they're lucky, they get to answer some of those questions. Um, yeah. But if, you know, they're just going to keep asking questions and that's, Yeah. that's, and you want that to be. You want kids to go wait time out how come or whatever you want kids to think critically I think isn't that supposed to be the point of education Maybe I mean, to equip kids to have <laughs> conversations and to yeah. figure things out that benefit themselves and That's right. others. That's right. Absolutely, you know, one one would hope as opposed to just churning it out so they can be obedient little sheep in a factory. Right, yeah. we're, we're kind of past that.
0: Yeah, you I know? hope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, mostly yeah we're
1: mostly past that yeah
0: you know? well and we and, and we are you know we are kind of at a tipping point i think because i think that for all kinds of reasons it could be the subject of a, of a different episode um the the what does what the school functioned for 50 years ago isn't what isn't relevant today it, it doesn't connect as naturally to kids. you know you talk about this simple act of asking questions and, and notice i said simple not easy um right. but simple process of asking questions And then yet when I survey my students at the beginning of the year, they don't like to ask questions because they don't want anybody to think they don't know everything. And so as you kind of talk about it being baked into where we are as a society right now, the most important thing we have is to pose questions. And yet it's the thing that students are the most uncomfortable doing in class in front of that's
1: why the, that's why the wondering language is so important because kids will willingly wonder wonder things, but they won't ask questions because again they don't want to appear dumb they that's don't right. want someone to know they don't know something but they'll go oh wait a minute what if blah 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 they exactly. won't say oh uh mr Munoz i don't understand something something they'll go like right. hang on tell me why this like why why didn't he yeah. do that why did that guy even go over there? Like, what? Yeah. well, hey, let's, let's that's a I good wonder,
0: I think yeah. about like primary sources, like, you know, uh, history teachers are obsessed with the idea of primary sources, um, but, we, but we get upset when a student's like, why did they write like this? You know, and I'm like, that's a great question. How do you think they're writing? It's well, it's like these words that are just so weird, and that kind of gets you into that conversation of that wondering and kind of allowing them to process things on their own terms, which I think is is a really um, disruptive and revolutionary act. Just let them describe things the way they see them, and then and then ask questions and model that questioning uh, process.
1: Yeah, um, it would be great if that's what we, you know. That's what school was like. I mean, yeah, we have a we have a a currently a pile of content we would like kids to know because we think it's important, but we don't I don't think we always reflect on why do we actually want them to know that stuff, you know, and because, well, I think ultimately someone wanted you to know them so that you could think critically about challenges that we have faced and are facing and will face, Yeah. But that's not that doesn't necessarily come across that kind of got lost, I think, in the right. sort of we, knowledge we, transmission. That's model right.
0: That's that right. Is oh, not so, well so
1: helpful, you know? Yeah. And uh, no, that's I,
0: right. That's right.
1: Yeah. I wanted to um, sort of t- call out one more thing because it sort of yeah. ties in a lot of thinking about our universe. So the um, the American Statistical Association and the New York Times Learning Network have a project called What's Going On With This Graph? Yeah. Um, And uh, and the the main key about it is the reason that it's a thing is because when you've got all these sort of infographics and pictures that tell stories with numbers and you want people uh, to not think, oh, I don't understand numbers. I don't know statistics. I can't think about that. You want them to look at it and go like, oh, I notice this, this, and this. Well, I, hmm, that makes me wonder. This. So they actually use their first two questions to. Uh, this is a project for kids, but grownups, of course, can play along. Is you know, what do you notice about this graph? What list all the things you notice, and then what does that make you wonder? Yeah. And then thinking about how do you think this impacts you and your community and things. But it really is by by using what do you notice and what do you wonder. They're saying everyone has ideas about this perhaps seemingly complex graph and like what is going on here right and not like oh someone needs to calculate the r or Uh what you know like no what what do you what do you see here what is this going on and and i think their project is particularly interesting because a lot of the graphs bring up a lot of really interesting societal conversations right some are not like some are more about music and culture they're not about genocide and gun violence but those come up too so they're covering the whole thing but it really just is taking the stance of like what what do you see here like what do you what do you see in this because everyone sees something and everyone will wonder something and again it's it's taking that stance of like we all have ideas you you have ideas about this even if you first look at it and go like oh that's a lot of stuff going on i wonder what you know what is all that about oh well, what do you what do you see start thinking about what you see so i think it's yeah. it's really important and it leads to a lot of uh, i had some good conversations with some fifth and sixth graders about electricity generation in the us and oh, cool. why their state of <laughs> illinois has been nuclear the whole time while everyone around them is coal so you wow. can get into geography and politics and economics. All kinds of stuff. Uh, It's great stuff. You're just starting, you know, look at a graph, start a conversation and you can go lots of different directions. I think it'd be a great sort of integrated school project in to look at some of those graphs. Yeah, folks,
0: that's, that's what's going on with this graph. Uh, Check it out. It's a a project by the New York times. And what's the other organization you said?
1: American statistical association.
0: American statistical association. Yeah. Check that out. That sounds amazing. Um, So, uh, what what are you? How do people find you? How do people uh, learn from you? Uh, get those ideas. And what are some things you're working on?
1: Well, let's see. You find me on Twitter. Um, I don't always tweet as much as I should, but uh, but I try. So at mfannie, um, and then uh, I have a blog that uh, is slowly being updated. I, I lost nice. my blog when the math form got dissolved, so I'm slowly putting posts uh. back up. Uh, if people tweet at me and say, hey, get it in gear, you know, maybe I will. So that's <laughs> any.mathematicalthinking.org. Um, and then, uh, you know, maybe I'll be at a conference. Uh, I've been doing some stuff <laughs> online. Um, did a workshop for people in Hong Kong uh, Tuesday night, my Tuesday night, their, their Wednesday. Their, their
0: Wednesday. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, so trying to sort of poke my head up here and there. And um, but also just look online and see who is tweeting and blogging about notice and wonder and the shifts that that's uh, making in their classroom, and uh, it is not just math people. I tend to follow math people, but um, yeah. but you know, as you said, lot. It's it's a tool for everyone. I know lots yeah. of people are using it in science. It's kind of defines the scientific method. Like yeah. oh, let's yeah. do this Little thing, bit. and what are we seeing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, different language from you know hypoth- hypothesize and experiment yep. sort of thing, and theories um, and
0: that kind of thing. Yep.
1: And uh, let's see things I'm working on. Uh, I, I'm part of three grants right now. One that's helping uh, the bootstrap bootstrap world, which is uh, gets at using computer programming to examine math um, math ideas, mainly mm. around functions and data science. Okay. Um, so we're working with the state of Oklahoma because they have a lot of um, computer science requirements coming down the line. And so okay. how do we how can we do integrated computer science and mathematics to the benefit yeah. of both? Um, yeah. And then a, a project that's looking, uh, called Mathematical Thinkers Like Me, that's looking at um, creating better mathematical opportunities, particularly for our black and brown students, but also yeah. a lot of um, bringing identity and like bring, kids bringing their whole selves to doing challenging mathematics uh, using interesting technology tools. Um, That is, we did not talk about the fact that we teach math as if computers were never invented. Right. So uh, so (laughs) that's, you know, someone who worked on a a dynamic mathematics software tool in the eighties that (laughs) still not everybody uses, um, you know, that (laughs) it's it's a little, uh, a little jarring. Um, And then uh, I'm also working on a, a grant project with our colleagues at Drexel University looking at student work. So what does it mean? we're actually trying to disrupt and we have used that word disrupt the yes. idea
0: that Love teachers
1: it. are always yes. looking their job is to look at student work and assess it like mm-hmm. give it a grade but how can we make time and space for just looking at student work for the sake of looking at it and trying to figure out what's going on yeah. um, and then you get better at doing the other parts that you sort of are pressured to do but right. uh, making space for that so that's that continues work that we've been doing for a long time yeah. um, so I'm also an author on a new McGraw-Hill K-5 textbook series that every lesson starts with a be curious moment. So like every lesson starts by asking kids some version of what do you notice and what do you wonder? Like something that's like designed to collect student ideas before it decides to to teach them anything, right? Yes. um, And then also working on revising a middle school series for them. Um, You know, Again, it's how do we get more student voice into everything because that's You know, you want I would love for kids to like math, but they don't even know what it is, right? They they think it's cranking out answers. And as as any grown-up will tell you, it's this deadly, awful thing that you do. So and that you better
0: do also. And it better look like what I yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, so just trying to put more more student voice into all of those things. That that's you know, the main thing I'm focused on is yeah, they're they're humans, they have brains, they have um. Well, they have feelings, you know. Yeah, they have yeah. all that that stuff too, but they have ideas. And and how do we make sure those ideas actually have some part in what we do in every class, not just math? But I I focus on math. I try to stay sure, uh, stay course. a little bit focused yeah. um, because that's what interests me the most. But it's yeah. so true in everything. Yeah. So. it it
0: makes me wonder if why we even have subjects and maybe there's a good reason for it but i think that when we're talking about a humanizing approach to the learning process and how a lot of these challenges are endemic in the system overall like i'm thinking about you know your lane is math but i my lane is history and how do i how do i develop my skills in setting up a really powerful and meaningful and authentic notice and wonder environment in a history class um, I teach community organizing. How does how does notice and wonder work in community organizing? Like I struggle to think of an area where it would not be deep and engaging and powerful. Um, Annie Fetter, I- I'm so grateful for this conversation. I'm so grateful for your generosity with your knowledge. Um, i'm ready to run through a wall so if there are any walls that need to be run through in the name of notice and wonder i am here for it let me know please um i i've really really enjoyed this conversation and thank you for taking time out of your day to to be habitually disruptive
1: well thanks so much for inviting me it's so fun to to talk about it and just to think about it in you know spheres beyond mathematics also or just what is it, what does it mean to educate people or what's the point of school? So, yeah, absolutely. good disruptive conversation to have.
0: Always good. So yeah, we will post all of the links to what Annie is working on. Also go on Twitter and look for these things. Twitter is such remains, a, and I, I say this unironically and unsarcastically, it's some of my favorite professional development that's available to me, especially in a, in a pandemic, especially when we spend time in quarantine. Um, it is an amazing place. Um, and check out these amazing ideas that Annie and others are talking about and writing about and publishing about and applying. So, um, Annie, thanks again. Um, We will talk to you soon.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much.